wretched man that I am. Who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God, through Jesus Christ our Lord. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body? From this body. Sin is not just a spiritual or intellectual problem. There's something wrong with my fallen body, Lord. It perverts my desires and seeks to render me powerless. Who will deliver me and the answer is immediate. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Who will deliver you? Jesus Christ will deliver you. This is the climax of our passage today in Romans 7. Paul lets out this heart-rending cry, but it's not a cry of stuckness or despair. That has no answer. It's a cry of longing and faith that drives us to Jesus as our only rescuer. Amen? Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. It's important to keep in mind this climax, that this is where Paul is leading us in Romans 7. Otherwise, we may become distracted or lost as we travel down this winding path, right? If we just heard that read, so this is a confusing passage. Will you please grab a Bible and turn there with me to Romans 7, page 943 of your pew Bible. And what's going on here is that Paul is just trying to describe the place of the Old Testament law in God's good purposes. How does the law fit into God's overall work of salvation? If the law of Moses ultimately came from God, how can it be that it's no longer binding on God's people? These were the kinds of questions people were asking at that time. And here, Paul begins by using the law of marriage as a guiding metaphor. He says in verse 1, Or do you not know, brothers, for I am speaking to those who know the law. So he clarifies that he's speaking to the Jewish Christians in Rome. Remember the church in Rome was comprised of Jewish Christians and Gentile Christians. And sometimes in, in Romans he's speaking to one group and sometimes the other. And he's trying to reconcile them. He's trying to unify them. He says, do you not know that the law is binding on a person only as long as he lives? For a married woman, he says, is bound by law to her husband while he lives. And then skipping down to the second half of verse 3. But if her husband dies, she's free from that law. If she marries another man, she's not an adulteress. So Paul is explaining that even though the previous covenant, the old covenant, was real and it was holy. And, and she entered into it with good faith. Even this good thing was nullified. When? When was it nullified? When her husband died. Paul's point is that for Jewish Christians like himself, the Old Testament was real and holy. And so their commitment to it was a good thing, amen? But it was nullified for them when they died with Christ through faith and baptism, which was just described at length in Romans 6. Likewise, he says in verse 4, 
you also have died to the law through the body of Christ, so that you may belong to another, to him who has been raised from the dead. So you went under the waters of baptism and you died with Christ. You came up from the waters of baptism and you were resurrected with him. So their lives no longer belong to the law like they used to, but to Christ. There's a shift in their allegiance, a shift in their identification. Now, a lot of commentators have pointed out this is not a perfect analogy, but it really does get the point across clearly, doesn't it? Christians are not called to be legalists who exaggerate the place of the law, like the Pharisees, right? And they're, they're not called to be antinomians, anti-law people, lawless people who denigrate the place of the law. We're called to spirit-filled service unto Christ. Look down with me, especially at verses 5 and 6. And these verses, I just want to highlight because they're, they're sort of a section heading that set out two very different modes of existence. So verse 5 describes life under the old covenant, the way of the flesh and the law, which only leads to death. And this is really what the rest of Romans 7 is about. Whereas verse 6 describes life in Christ. He says, serving in the new way of the spirit, which is what Romans 8 will so gloriously describe. So notice that life in Christ still involves service, but the motives and the means are completely transformed. Our attitude is not that we serve because we have to. Do I have to make my bed, Jesus? We don't serve because we have to. We serve because we get to. Not because obedience leads to salvation, but because salvation leads to obedience, to a spirit-controlled life. Amen? Amen? In fact, the word spirit, which occurs here in verse 6, is never used again in Romans 7. Not one time. Why? Because this section is not describing life in the spirit. By contrast, the, the Holy Spirit is referenced 19 times in the first 27 verses of chapter 8. So there's a shift that takes place. So the rest of Romans 7, verses 7 through 25, is not really about the Christian life at all. That's actually one of the most common misinterpretations of this passage. Instead, it unpacks the way of the flesh that Paul just brought up in the section heading here in verse 5. This section forms a sort of great parentheses between the new way of the Spirit in Romans 7, 6, and when he's going to take up this topic again in chapter 8, verse 1. So please uh, humor me a little bit with some of these exegetical points because we're going to get to more practical stuff. So if the rest of Romans is not about the Christian life, what is it about? Right? How is it relevant for us today? And I think anyone who's spent much time in this chapter can tell us that it's relevant because it speaks more powerfully about the nature of sin than almost any passage in the Bible. Doesn't it? Romans 7? And unless we have a proper understanding of sin as Christians, we're going to be constantly tripping up as we try to follow Jesus. 
We're going to be constantly tripping up in our walk. And so this passage has four crucial lessons to teach us about the nature of sin. The first, I'm just going to say these briefly, and then we'll unpack them in greater detail. The first is that sin is not God's fault. All right, that's, that's an important point in this passage. Second, when you think of sin, think of power, not a point system. Think of a power, not a point system. Number three, sin is a power that remains at work, even in genuine Christians, though we also have power to overcome. And we'll say something about that as well. And fourth, for those in Christ, our identity is no longer in our sin. Our identity is no longer in our fallenness. So let's look a bit at what Romans 7 has to say about each of these points. First, when it comes to sin, it's not God's fault. Right? I I, I feel like our sort of psycho-spiritual culture, like the high moment of our life, the greatest breakthrough, is when we realize that everything bad in our life was our parents' fault. And some of us have had terrible things happen to us through our parents, and I'm not denying that. But that is not the sort of like meta-explanation for every problem in our life. And you know what? If you have kids, you're going to mess them up too. But if you take and <laughs> you don't amen that. <laughs> and if you take an utterly holy God, and then you add a morally free human being, and somehow you end up on the other side with sin and death, you can be sure that God wasn't the problem. Think back to the Garden of Eden. Before there was ever any commands given, there was no law, not one command. Genesis 2.15 says, Then the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden to work it and keep it. Then God gives his first ever moral law in verses 16 and 17. It says, And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree that is in the garden. Before he gives a command, he's like, I just want you to know how vast the permission is. Don't forget this part. You may surely eat of every tree in the garden, but of this one tree, of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. So the commandment is clear and holy, and yet, by the time we get to the end of chapter 3, sin and death have entered the equation. How did this happen? Well, Paul explains it here in Romans 7, actually. In fact, many commentators believe that Paul, who was just talking about Adam a few paragraphs before this, is again directly referring to Genesis 2 and 3 when he says in Romans 7, 9, I was once alive apart from the law. When was Paul, this thoroughly Jewish Pharisee, circumcised on the eighth day of his life, ever alive apart from the law? Never! But humanity once was in Adam. Continuing on, I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, that is, when God said, you shall not eat of that one tree, sin came alive and I died. The very commandment that promised 
life, the tree of life to me, proved to be death to me. For sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me, and through it, killed me. But this disastrous situation, which was emphatically not God's fault, nor some sort of defect in his commandment, is further explained in verse 12. He says, the law is holy, and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. Right? Sin is never God's fault. And even though believers are now free from the law of Moses, sin was not the law of Moses' fault either. If a wise parent warns their children not to play in the busy street, but they decide to do it anyway, the sin is not the parent's fault, right? And neither are the injuries that result. The instruction itself was righteous, even if it generated a rebellious urge in the hearts of the children. All right, let's move on to point number two. When it comes to sin, think more of of a power rather than a point system. Sin is more like a disease than it is like a one-off desire. It's more like neurosis than it is like a bad habit. Psychologists speak of this strange but very common phenomena known as contra-suggestibility. This is the tendency within human beings to respond to a suggestion by believing or doing the opposite. Now, some of you are like, oh, that's what you call the thing that I do. But but this is actually not truly foreign to any of us, is it? And it's not foreign to God's word. 2,000 years before modern psychology, Romans 7, 8 said that sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. Seizing an opportunity through the commandment. That's contra-suggestibility there. That's the power of sin at work in the psyche of fallen human beings. Years ago, I was talking to this college student who had just started attending a liturgical church, and I remember he was sort of uh, put off by this practice of confessing your sins every week in the liturgy. And I was like, why? And he said, well, what if I haven't sinned since last week? That should have gotten a bigger laugh than that. (laughs) See, this young man was thinking of sin in a superficial way, like some kind of cosmic point system, right? And he thought, well, if I didn't drink and didn't smoke, didn't cuss, didn't fornicate this week, then I probably didn't sin at all. By contrast, listen to the nuanced power ascribed to sin in Romans 7, 14 and following. It says, For we know that the law is spiritual, but I'm of the flesh, sold under sin, for I do not understand my own actions. I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing that I hate. Have you ever felt that way? I hate this. There's no more pleasure in this sin. It's like an addict who gets less and less pleasure from the thing that they're addicted to as time goes on. I hate this. Skipping down to verse 18. For I have a desire to do what's right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good that I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep doing. Now if I do what I do not want, 
It is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. Friends, that's slavery. This is nothing less than the devastating power of original sin. And we all know it well. We all have inside knowledge, so to speak, don't we? G.K. Chesterton once quipped that certain new theologians dispute original sin, which is the only part of Christian theology which can really be proved. And that brings us to point number three, that sin is still at work even in genuine believers. This shouldn't surprise us, guys, unless we're delusional or our understanding of sin is just way too superficial. We get it. We understand the language of Romans 7. Now, you may be thinking, well, I thought we just established that this passage isn't about the Christian life or the life of the Spirit. That's true. In fact, you may know that there's a great debate about who Paul is talking about in these verses. Is he talking about pre-fallen man in the garden and the story of how the command eventuated in death, like we were just exploring? Is he describing the Israelites and their struggle to live up to the demands of the Torah, the law of Moses? Or is he describing his own struggles with sin prior to the life of the Spirit? John Stott interprets Paul's experiences as being, quote, not only autobiographical, but also typical representative either of human beings in general or of the Jewish people in particular. And I think he's right on. So the question of whether these verses relate to Paul, Adam, or Israel is essentially a false dichotomy or, or a false trichotomy, if that's a thing. Stott goes on to say, Paul's experience, the sequence of comparative innocence, law, sin, death, though uniquely his own, is also everybody's. Whether Adam's in the garden, Israel's on the mountain, or for that matter, ours today. It's everybody's, right? And I think this is true. All human beings know of the continued power of sin. Even the regenerate believer in Christ. After all, as we just saw last week in Galatians 5, 16 through 26, Paul describes in detail this this tension, this ongoing tension between believers, within believers, excuse me, between the works of the flesh and the fruit of the Spirit. And there's this tension, right? And that's describing people who have been born again. But see, the key difference between that passage and this one is the presence of the third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit. The role of the Spirit is central in Galatians 5, whereas it's absent in Romans 7. Likewise, slavery to sin is just assumed in Romans 7, whereas in Galatians, Paul describes the power to overcome. Walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. Galatians 5.16 this overcoming power and the transference of our identity from that of the flesh to the spirit will be a central theme in Romans 8 and in John's message next week. Stott summarizes it in this way. He says, only when the gospel has replaced the law and the Holy Spirit, the written code, can defeat be replaced by victory. And that is my fourth and final point about the nature of sin. For those who are in Christ, 
our identity is no longer in our sin. We don't identify with that sin, with that slavery, like we used to. You know, it's very common for Christians today to use Scripture, to even use Paul's theology in particular, to think of ourselves primarily as sinners. That's something we do, isn't it? But have you ever noticed that Paul almost never uses that language? He almost always addresses his readers as saints. And it's not because we're no longer sinful. Of course not. It's because he wants us to lean in to our new creation identity. Right? Turn to your neighbor and say, neighbor? Turn to your neighbor and say, neighbor? He wants us to lean in. <laughs> As Romans 8.15 explains, for you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back. Say to your neighbor, don't fall back. But you've received the spirit of adoption as sons and daughters by whom we cry, Abba, Father. In other words, don't fall back into Romans 7. Lean into Romans 8. Don't fall back into the flesh. Lean into the spirit. Don't fall back into Adam. Lean into Christ. Leave your spiritual orphanages behind and cleave to the God who loves you and chose you. Because our identity and the ways that we speak of ourselves and label ourselves have deep spiritual power. Our identity is not something that's rooted in our feelings, our desires, our patterns of behavior, our social groupings, our strivings for self-actualization. For Christians, our identity is rooted in God's reality, it, what's right and true and good and pure according to God and how he defines it. For example, if you flip back to Romans 6 for a moment, do that just for a moment and look with me at verse 11. Because this is a really interesting verse. Here Paul exhorts the baptized believers to, quote, consider themselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. But if that was already true about them, if they were already dead to sin, then why would it matter if they considered themselves in that way? Why would that matter at all? Because aligning our self-identity with our heavenly identification has spiritual power. It has spiritual import. It's a way of living into the prayer, your kingdom come, your will be done, your labels, Lord, your truth on earth as it is in heaven. Amen? And what is our identity in heaven? What is our identity in heaven? Colossians 3.3 says, For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. Guys, the world is rampant with self-labeling and identity politics right now. 
But for Christians, our truest identity is something that we don't actually choose for ourselves. Even our true name is ultimately in the Lord's hands. Revelation 2.17, the Lord Jesus says to the church in Pergamum, to the one who overcomes, I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. Won't that be a beautiful thing? When the Lord hands you a stone with a name on it that's just between you and him. Because he's your creator. He knows you. He's your redeemer. He loves you. And only he knows our true name. My favorite movie when I was a kid was a fantasy film called The Never-Ending Story. Have any of you guys seen this cheesy thing? I, I, I'm almost afraid to watch it again and see what the special effects really look like circa 2021. And anyways, spoiler alert, in case you ever want to watch Never-Ending Story, which I know is most of you. At the climax of the movie, the protagonist named Bastion Balthazar Bucks has to save the world by giving a name to the childlike empress, who is sort of this divine figure. Her world is literally crumbling, falling apart, until Bastion finally summons up the courage to shout out, Moon Child! <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm being serious. <laughs> and because he gives her that name, literally off the top of his head, it's not like there's no previous theme being established in the movie. I, it's hard to even understand what he's saying. Somehow he saves her world. Now this movie was made, made back in 1984, but even then, notice the complete reversal from the scene in Revelation 2. Right? In the film, it's the human who names and thereby saves the divine being rather than the other way around. Saints, we've gotten it backwards. Rather than being created in God's image, we fancy that we get to create God in our own. Even now, some of these words that I'm speaking may seem upside down to you, but that's because the world is upside down. Beware of the spirit of our age, brothers and sisters. Take care that your identity and self-identifications are in line with heaven. And be careful of the labels that you affirm in others so lightly. These things have spiritual power. As I read scripture, I see the topic of identity falling essentially into three different tiers. The ontological, which, bear with me, I'm a philosopher. That's the level of our fundamental being. Second, the cultural. Third, the experiential. So the ontological tier refers to our fixed or our fundamental being, such as our union with Christ, so beautifully described in this passage. Or further on down the ladder, our biological gender, so beautifully described in Genesis 2. The cultural refers to things like our ethnicity or our language, which is less of an innate thing, but still has import in the book of Revelation, right? 
The third category, the experiential, focuses on things like calling and profession and desires and patterns of behavior. And I think it's clear that most of our labels today that we think are most important fall into this third category. Right? Our culture would clearly want to put them in the first. In this sense, even our very language is antithetical to our spiritual formation. Because as spirit-filled Christians, we're not called to fall back into Romans 7, into slavery, into Adam. Yes, we're all sinners, and we have very peculiar sins, very peculiar ways in which our bodies lead us astray. There's nothing unique about that. We can all hold arms and say, yeah, yeah, that's, that's all of us, every last one of us, regardless of what our sin is, right? But we're not called to fall back into slavery. And into Adam, we're called to lean in into Romans 8, into freedom, into Christ. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body? From this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. I want to close with the prayer from the fourth Sunday of Epiphany that we read at the beginning of the service. And listen to this prayer from our liturgy, guys, and let it minister to you. This word from the church spoken over us this morning. Oh God, you know that we are set in the midst of so many grave dangers that in the frailty of our nature, we cannot always stand upright. Grant us your strength and protection to support us in all dangers and carry us through every temptation. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, world without end.